0: Hey, everyone, you're listening to The Talent Revolution, where we believe that focusing on quality over volume and being different, not better, is the right way to hire the best humans and build stronger teams. To help you do this, I go behind the scenes with forward-thinking recruiters, employer brand experts, and people leaders making a huge difference to their organizations. I'm your host, Tom Hackwell, and in today's episode, I'll be speaking with Dan Keynes. Dan's currently Global Talent Acquisition Lead at Lemira DX. He's been in the recruitment space since '99, starting out as an agency recruiter and then transitioning into the world of in-house recruitment with Sky in 2001. From there, he's moved through the corporate world into SMEs and then joined Lemira DX at the startup stage. Dan's seen it all over the past 20 years and has leveraged that experience to help Lemira DX scale hyper fast, growing the team there from just under 300 when he joined in 2019 to over 1,500 today. We've got lots to learn and I'm keen to dig in, so thanks so much for your time, Dan. No problem. I think that if we start at the beginning right always really interested in understanding kind of what brought you to the HR space in the first instance like it looks like you started your career there right like what drew you to, to the industry?
1: I think at the time I got a good opportunity to join Sky back in 2001 and it did look like I got a good opportunity but recruitment was very different back then it's very manual it's very spreadsheet based 120 roles handled all that sort of stuff but I think it was the opportunity to go in-house and actually make a difference to an individual company rather than do it from an agency perspective and sales perspective.
0: No that makes perfect sense I think I mean we talked in the intro there about you joining Sky in 2001 right big company very well-known brand like what's your career journey look like in a bit more detail from that in 2001 through to today?
1: I've been through quite a number of organisations, so I mainly stayed in corporates, and actually Sky has seen me return to them three times, actually, so um, I'm sure they probably won't have me back now, um, but actually I've also been in financial services, sort of pensions, and then on to the bigger organisation at a later point. Um, As I look at those corporates, I learned a lot through those around recruitment and how recruitment evolved, especially when I was at Sky, because we then started to go into social sourcing and all that sort of stuff and starting to get a bit more data orientated and candidate experience orientated, employer brands, you name it, it's all the buzzwords. Um, Then after my last big corporate role, I made a conscious decision that I wanted to go into smaller organisations. That started off with an IT consultancy that compared to the last place was much smaller at just sort of 12, 1500. And the reason for that move was because I wanted to be a bit closer to the bone, the commercials. So I wanted to understand how talent acquisition truly impacted a business from a commercial perspective. But also, when you're in a smaller organisation, your small actions have a big impact on those that you're recruiting the people in the business. And it gets you starting to get sorry, gets you more creative when it becomes to talent acquisition not just in the way you source, but the candidate journey, the recruiter journey, the hiring manager journey, the the whole piece. I also found that smaller organizations took things a lot more personally. So it had a bit more of a family feel to it at the beginning. And I think from there you have more open discussions around what you can do and they've got quite a vested interest. That was an SME. And then I went right into the startup zone, which is where I started off with Lumira DX a couple of years ago. That was really interesting. I walked into a role where there was very little in place but lots to do so the first 3 months I was a hands on recruiter because I didn't have a team it was mental I'm not going to lie but if you look at what this organization does it's it was worthwhile and and actually I've been on quite a journey in 2 years and seen a big difference and still massive changes happening now as the organization grows and globalizes
0: now, that's awesome. And I'm going to dig into all of those things, I think, over the next sort of half an hour. But I guess one question I had just right out of the gate, right? So you talked a lot about the transition from big co to small co and, and all of the really compelling reasons that kind of drove that move, all of which make loads of sense, right? I think you talked also a lot about the positives, right? More of a family oriented atmosphere, people take things more personally, You're a bit more nimble, you're a bit closer to the bone, all, all makes sense. Surely there were some negatives as well or some challenges, though, with that kind of transition from bigger to smaller, right? Can you kind of piece them apart for me?
1: Yeah, when you're in a bigger corporate, you've got – it's funny because when I was in bigger corporates, I complained about all the systems and all the reporting and all the processes. But when you haven't got them all, you complain about the fact you haven't got them all. <laughs> so that's the, that's the first thing. I think the other thing, there's this, if you're in a really good HR or TA function, and Sky at the point when I was there was one of these – um, you don't realize the support you've got around you because it's almost like this big machine where there's a lot of invisibles going on. And when you move away from it, you realize you haven't got that there. And I suppose the other big learning for me when it comes to challenges, is the ambiguity, which everyone just calls strategy. But when you're in a bigger organization, they've got a direction, they've got a vision, they know where they're going. These things tend to stay the same for a certain period of time. But actually, when you go into a small organization, you have to start to create that yourself. So it's starting from that I don't know to what should it look like and then evolving it. So you've you've got to take quite an iterative approach to stuff. So that can be, it's exciting, but it comes with a lot of pain and sometimes a fair few hours. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure. Uh,
0: on the employer brand side, I mean, like, did you identify any big challenges? They're obviously coming from places like Sky and some of the other bigger organisations you've worked with. Everybody knows those brands, right? From a career perspective, everybody understands the role they play in the market. When you moved to the, you know, the IT consultancy firm and now Lemuria DX, with, with, I guess, comparatively unknown brands, did you have a completely different sourcing playbook or did you kind of try and adopt the same approach?
1: I'm not going to lie and say I tried to adopt the same approach and failed miserably. <laughs> so,
0: but that's why I'm asking the question, right? Like, it's interesting.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. So, I mean, when I joined the the IT consultancy, the biggest mistake I made was to try and literally pull my experience from where I was successful at Sky and bring that into there. And I I learned very quickly that not everywhere Sky at that point or whichever organization you've come from. I think from an employer brand perspective, when you work for a company that has a product brand, that drives a lot of brand loyalty, whether it's employer brand or purchases consumers whatever so that makes it easier I think the big thing for me when I went into the IT consultancy and also with Lumira DX these aren't products that the consumer use they're you know the business to business IT consultancy is a service provider that that helps companies implement so they're almost invisible to the outside world from that perspective Lumira DX unless you're in the healthcare and medical diagnostics industry, no one really knows who you are. So you, you'd have to take a completely different track on that one. And some of that's about drip feeding through social media, speaking to networks, being a conscientious contributor to certain things like meetups and stuff like that. So, But with Lumira DX, we're, we're still on that journey, having done things like recently completed our EVP and, and stuff like that.
0: Let's dive into DX then, because I think that's where we're going to spend the, the majority of our time today. I would love a bit of a primer on, on the business, right? Like what's the founding story and, and what does the business do?
1: So the organization was founded back in 2014 by three founders, uh, Ron Zvenziger, Dave Scott and uh, Jerry McAuley. These three founders have got quite a big track record in medical diagnostics, go stretching back decades They've set up previous companies such as MediSense, Inverness Medical, and the one that's probably well known in the industry called Alia, that's now part of Abbott. So their track record is pretty immense and some of the things they've been involved in is um, is pretty astronomical. When you look at the when you look at what they've now, and by all means jump on our website, see a bit more about what it is, but they've basically invented a point of care. Platform that can measure multiple instances. So most point of care platforms will measure one thing. Common ones like diabetes, flu, whatever. Our platform will measure multiple things. Obviously, COVID's quite hot off the press. Everyone knows about that. But not only that, it's portable. It's got connectivity which means it can be used in settings and, you know, we're in partnerships with people like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So so it can be used out in developing in third world countries and in a way that makes um, healthcare accessible for everyone, no matter what their backgrounds. That gives you a bit of a view of where they've been. And and, and obviously the, the organisation is one that's, that's grown at pace, really, um, in all that time since it started in 2014 in probably a very small building somewhere with about sort of five to 10 people right the way to where we are now.
0: So talk to me about where you are now, right? So like, how big is the company today? And run me through the time between 2014 and today, you know, has it been like a really linear, slow and steady growth curve? Has it kind of
1: exploded? What's that look like? The beginning was probably slow is not a word I'd put with Lumira DX if I'm being honest. So it's a positive thing we we move and change fast, which I'm sure every startup says. The organisation did start with a small number of people, and actually, to the credit of the founders, there are a, quite a number of managers that followed them from company to company. I don't know if that was a purposeful thing, but I'm going to take that as a positive reflection on them. So it did start as a small organisation that was very R and D driven, doing manufacturing of products once they once they went live. If I look at it, the easiest way, clearer way for me to put it is when I joined in September 2019, we were sitting at circa 300 people. And actually at that point, I think in that in 2019, we'd grown by something like 150 people in that one year, which was the biggest growth the organization had seen at that point. And I was the I was the sole recruiter, probably recruiting the last 50 odd of those in the, the last quarter of the year, which was with only a small ATS and not a great deal. So it was uh, it was interesting, but it was, it was good. What became very apparent, well, as you know, we got into the beginning of 2020, and organisations like this quite rightly take a bit of a breath in and say, right, where do we go next? And actually, they were working out the priorities, and then unexpectedly, as it was for everyone, COVID-19 hit. Then the organisation really had to... Uh, look at its situation and it was all about what can we do to help the world on this and they were really conscientious about that so you know commercially they could have been rubbing their hands together but the meetings I was in you could tell that the founders were saying that we've got the tech we've got the talent in the room how do we actually help that meant we needed to scale the company up rapidly really really rapidly so run about April last year I got initial plans in we had to We had to grow by around about 300 odd at that point very quickly. So, and got to remember at that point, we didn't really have much in the way of processes and systems. So we have a basic ATS, which we still have now and will hopefully evolve. But a lot of our processes for selection were very manual. This is people that have been used to interviewing people face to face and doing assessment centres and all that good stuff. And we were going to have to flip that really quick. Um, so that's what we did, and that that basically took us to where we are now. And this will give you an idea of the scale. So we're sitting around about the sort of fifteen hundred mark at the moment globally. Um, so the growth rate has been probably bigger than I've seen in most organisations.
0: Yeah, I mean, like that's a that's a heck of a lot of people to hire. But that's a heck of a lot of people to hire if you had twenty thousand employees, right? No doubt, if you forgot you're tripling in size or doubling in size in a twelve month period, that's crazy. Yeah, kind of, as you said, going from a standing start with simple systems and a, not a huge tech stack and a small team, it's a lot to accomplish, right? And I, I guess really keen to dig into how you did that in a minute. I think before we do that, though, a couple more questions just to kind of help set the the tone for what the team looks like, right? What does your people team look like? How many of you are there? What's the structure of that team at the moment, et cetera?
1: So, just it was interesting. That's had quite a growth as well because it was six when I first joined back in 2019. But our, um, our SVP, People and Culture, joined in September last year. So he's been here about a year and we're now sitting around about 30 to 35 at the moment. So structure-wise, we have the SVP of People and Culture and he has a leadership team which consists of all the COE leads. So that's including myself. I have a, a co-lead that helps out from a program management and strategy perspective. But we had a head of talent management, Total Rewards. We also have a group of strategic HR business partners that obviously face off to the business and a couple of sort of regional leads for places like the Americas and, and EMEA. So, and all that's had to grow really quick. Oh, head of I don't forget Jill, head of our uh, HR services. He has a phenomenal job because that's the, the machine room for HR, and all of that's had to grow. Pretty rapidly, so this team's probably been uh, this, a lot of those were being recruited from sort of October, November onwards. With some of the recent starts starting as recently as June, so the team's not been together that long, but doing incredibly well. It's, it's. i have got to say now, it's one of the things we were talking about in the team meeting. There's, we've got so much to do, but there's absolutely no politics, and it's, it's something that's quite refreshing.
0: Yeah, I mean, as you say, you've built a team in short order and that team is performing clearly because you're scaling the business at the rate you need to be, which is a a real testament to you all. I guess one final question before we start digging into the kind of generic stuff is you talk a lot about tech and you talk about HR services and the, the sort of machine room for HR and all the functionality behind that. And I know you talked about an ATS and things like that before, but is there a specific piece of technology that you've rolled out across any aspect of the business that you think has been really, really supportive from a people perspective?
1: To be honest, when I first came in, they just rolled out an HRIS for the first time, quite a small scale one, um, really designed for SMEs at that point. And my colleagues did a really successful job and got good adoption for that. I think other than that, the the tech that we've rolled out so far hasn't been, we're, we're now looking at other options for that as we grow and you know you know potentially we will evolve that further but where we have seen success is more around the sort of talent acquisition space getting talent acquisition to use more online tools and the business to buy into that around things such as assessment selection usual stuff around headhunt and search but also we're using tools now to map markets as well which is helping inform you know if we have got any problems with labour shortages and what we should do with that and locations we should look at, all that sort of thing. So there have been our real successes, but that goes back to a point earlier of sort of incremental change, and that's what we've really had to work on the basis of.
0: So again, we're going to dig into Lemira DX in a minute and you're going to give us a great case study on kind of what you've done over the past couple of years to achieve what you've done. I think before that, though, that there's a few kind of quickfire questions I want to ask everybody these days, right? And so first one, what's the main KPI you guys are measuring in the TA team right now? Like, what are you assessing yourselves against? Well,
1: it's hard to say a main one because we've got everything almost on a level pegging right now because we're developing everything. So there's the traditional ones around time to hire and source a hire in there but the source hire is not just about cost and stuff like that we're building the foundations to make sure we can build the data sets to understand what makes successful employees and you know is a certain source result in more attrition or less attrition or that sort of thing so I'm being a bit very vague and political here but that is because if we're at that point I think for us where the real importance is coming in right now and I know this is something that you'll undoubtedly going to ask is around the inclusion piece so you know we've grown rapidly as an organization from nothing to where we are so so quickly and now we're starting to build a picture of what our diversity and inclusion is looking like that's then driven other things that we could be doing to help improve that and really form our view of what inclusion should be and is so there i would say that's that's the big thing at the moment around um as far as data and reporting's concerned.
0: Sure. What's the kind of current split of agencies versus direct, right? Like when you're growing at that rate are you outsourcing a lot of that acquisition or are you doing most of it in-house? What does that look like?
1: We sort of again went on a bit of a journey, you're going to hear this a lot from me. So um so if I look at April last year, there was me and one recruiter in house at that point and when you've got that number of roles and not many automated systems that's a lot to deal with so what we then did was we we basically pulled in we got agreement from a, the board that we needed to spend on agencies so at that point it was pretty hefty I think by the end of last year considering the number of roles it wasn't as bad as I thought but we run about sort of 30 to 40 percent reliant on agencies fast forward that to now beginning of the year when we did another ramp up we actually brought in a small RPO to do a hybrid model, so in-house and RPO. So the RPO took on the sort of volume hiring. And as we sit here now, and part of this is down to the fact that we slowed some of our recruitment recently, we're now sitting at something like 15% agency reliance for external hires.
0: Okay. So, you, and, and do you think that trend will continue or are you thinking as you ramp hiring back up again, you'll kind of push back?
1: As we ramp higher, it will, that will increase again. The aim is to try and keep it around about the 20% or lower if we can. So this is where me and my partners in crime are about to lock ourselves in a room next couple of days to get ready for the next big ramp up, if you know what I mean. So.
0: No, sure. And then the last kind of other generic questions is what's the sort of biggest impact thing you've done on the candidate experience side, right? Like, you know, big buzzword at the moment, everybody cares about a candidate experience. Obviously, you've got a multi-channel approach, but like, what's the single thing that's moved the needle the most on the CE side?
1: I think it was take take a more digital approach to the tools that we were using last year. Prior to last April, we had this very manual approach, which had people going through assessment centres or face-to-face interviews, and time to hire was was massive at the time. So we've managed to, over half, by using things like one-way video interviews, moving to Teams interviews, which you can set up quicker. Making sure that we've got SLAs in place for certain managers when we do campaigns and stuff like that, that reduced that time to hire massively. And I would say the biggest impact within that whole chain of events was when we introduced the one-way video interview, which really polarized opinions. I'm not going to be, I'm not going to lie about it. Is there's people out there said so this is really impersonal. You know, there's Dan recording himself asking questions, with they're coming up in text, and a candidate's got to respond to them in a recording, and it, it polarized opinions of candidates as well. But the one thing you couldn't escape is in some of these volume areas or some of the roles where this was useful, it took away the need for a recruiter to do a full on screen or a hiring manager to do a full on screen. And the other result that we found was that for everyone that went through this one way video interview, if you put the conversion from interview to offer was better than one in two, which again, shortened the time to hire completely. And the candidates were really starting to get really positive on their experience with us. Are we there yet? No, go back to the words I used before, but we're still on that journey. So it's not not as slick as some of the bigger, more, you know, bigger forward-thinking tech companies, but we've definitely got it better than not.
0: No, that's awesome. And as you keep saying, right, it's about marginal gains and you're continually rolling new stuff out and that's awesome. But good to hear one-way video interviews making a difference, right? Like I'm a big advocate of that sort of approach when you've got any form of volume to do and I get why it's polarizing, but the data doesn't lie, does it? So no, cool. All right. Well, look, I think I want to dig into to LaMira DX because the, I just think there's so much we can learn from you there, right? So can you kind of take us on that journey, right? Take us from joining at the sort of 300 headcount stage, being tasked with hiring 50 people in that last quarter, to being tasked with doubling headcount, at least uh, initial plans was the double headcount the following year, but then actually that turned out crazy more. How have you used your time over the past sort of 18 months per se, right? Like what does that look like?
1: The first three months... I made a conscious decision to really roll my sleeves up in a way that I hadn't done for a number of years before. So I was recruiting everything from, I suppose, entry-level packaging techs right the way up to senior roles for the first three months. And the the reason I did it, it was tough. You know, hiring 50 roles in a period of three months and trying to keep agency spend and stuff like that down when it's just you is hard going. But actually, the reason I did it was not just because I like a challenge, because I do, but also... But also so that I could get right under the skin of the business and not just from a knowing the business perspective, it was knowing the stakeholders, understanding what makes them tick from a recruitment standpoint and also starting to build at least a basic data set around how hiring was looking so that we could make some decisions in 2020. Which we did. If I go to the end of 2019, I then hired one person into my team, which was great. She was someone, and I hadn't poached. I promised she'd worked for agency side, but had actually been recruiting for us for a number of years before. So she actually knew the business better than I did when she came in. So it was, um, it was, it was a real positive. Um, but the, the beginning of, luckily for us, beginning of 2020, the recruitment has slowed down a bit, as as happens when you're in this startup environment. It suddenly peaks and drops, and peaks and drops. So it gave us some time to really look at where we wanted to go, what we needed to do. But then, as I mentioned earlier on, COVID-19 hit. And I think at the time, if I'm being honest, the one recruiter I had in was a bit worried about what this situation would hold for us if things slowed down. But the penny drops that you're in a medical diagnostics company. And let's be honest, it's likely to go the other way, which it did. So the, the organization, which had been primarily R&D driven at that point, the R&D was still there, but we were going to have to manufacture a product very quickly. Um, you know, it's no secret. So we, so the what I did then was I worked with my manager at the time and the business to try and pull together as best plans as we could in the short period of time to understand what was coming. The tough bit was the business wasn't used to phasing. So it wasn't used to saying, right, I need so many here, so many here, so many here. Do you know what I mean? It's like, let's just get everyone in. And as happens with startups, typically, once you get your roles approved, it's like horses out the traps, right? It's everyone wants to go. So so actually, we did go through some pain points there. But eventually, the business got really on board. The One of the senior directors we were dealing with, that it was really impacting their area, really made sure that his managers were owning their own recruitment and were taking responsibility for it. So it wasn't just my show. And from there, we were able to course correct right the way through. Now, was it pretty? No, not at all. You know, we implemented these new tools that I talked about earlier on. So that's the mapping tools, sourcing tools, one-way video interview, and we had a, a base ATS there. But we had to constantly change as we went through to improve things. There were times when it was horrible. There were times when it was great, and and actually we achieved a lot in that period. Now, what did happen was um, I got asked by the board as we were looking at these one well, these online video sorry online um, tools what we would need to deliver at this pace. And that was where I went in with, right, these are the tools I need, but also this is the resource we need. So at that point, I was able to grow the team by another two recruiters on the understanding we would still have a high agency reliance. And that at that point was another 350 to 500 roles, something like that. We finished most of that ramp up by about sort of November that year, quite successfully, but then there was still loads more recruitment. And if you bleed that into... This year, that then sees that growth, as I talked about, going from the 300 that I was in, uh, sorry, the 300 headcount when I started right the way up to, up to where we are now, which is sort of circa 1500. That headcount's not just within the UK, by the way, that's split across the main areas are UK and US, but actually there's commercial teams split across the globe.
0: I mean, that's awesome, right? And loads of things that you said there kind of get me thinking about questions. One of the things I wanted to kind of latch onto is you talked about the business transitioning from like, I guess, primarily R&D driven kind of experimental type organization through to something that's got to take a product out of market really quickly and ramp up manufacturing and distribution and all of these other things. I guess one of the things that, you know, speaking to lots of TA people, I often find interesting is how do you sort of integrate yourself into the space and into the industry and understand where that talent lives and how to speak to it and how to sell the opposition? Do, do you know what I mean? Like you talk about essentially building, you know, not talking for you, but building that kind of manufacturing and distribution channel within the business. How did you kind of learn where to go spend time with those people?
1: Yeah, no, it's it's a good. That's a really good question. So if I take this in two stages, so the first ramp up that I did April last year. That was a tough gig because we had to just hit the ground running with that one. So we were very dependent on the message that went out via agencies, plus the person that was in my team and myself were sort of piling stuff out on LinkedIn and social media as much as we could because we didn't have too many sort of formal channels on that front. That seemed to work quite well and really basic, but it worked. And we also got people within the organization to start to refer people they knew. So it was all about, and I, I learned this at the IT consultancy, Sometimes the worst thing you can do is go big bang on your brand and here we are and this is who we're going to recruit. And the nature of our business, they're not like that either. So so actually, it sort of became a bit more about word of mouth drip feeding brand into the industry that we're in, working with our third party suppliers to see how they can help us do that as well, because we just didn't have that capability at that point. Fast forward to now, I mentioned that we went down the hybrid model of an RPO and in-house. We've got a team that are a lot more established that know how to use social media, working with marketing. So we do things like improve our careers page. We're working on that again now that we've sort of evolved that further. There's a lot more discussion around social media and how we use that. Our marketing team got really on board really quickly and started to, just even from a product perspective, started to liven up our social media pages and change the website. And all that stuff, between that and some of the stuff we were doing with the RPO, really start to blow the doors open a bit more. Again, we're not there yet. It's an ongoing journey. But the thing we had to do, and I think I go back to my point earlier on, if you're not a product brand in a sense of a consumer brand, like a Sky or, or whatever else, then I think you need to go out to your brand, go out with your brand a bit differently. Because if you go big bang, people are just going to ignore it because it's just another bit of noise in their social media. So you, it's about understanding what messages you want to put out and how you want to put them out.
0: Another question I had, so so you know, you mentioned COVID, and obviously that's had a massive, I guess, positive impact on the mirror DX, which is great. Not necessarily true of many other industries and many other sectors, sadly. Do you find that a lot of the folks that you hired over the past, let's say, since the beginning of twenty twenty, were already in the sort of medical diagnostics industry, or on the periphery, are a lot of these people moving into the sector from external sectors? And if so, have you found yourself sort of like not just selling the business and the employer brand, but also selling the industry as a whole like what what does that look like for you
1: this is a real mixed bag this one so i would say last year we were trying to get as many people from either medical diagnostics or related industries of pharmacy pharmaceuticals that sort of stuff that have the same regulations or for the roles on in manufacturing for example such as packaging techs or production technicians if they hadn't come from medical diagnostics they've come from regulated industries, so they understand if they want to change something they can't just change it they've got to do certain to go through certain steps so there, there was a bit of variance at that point I think going to manufacturing, We did open it up quite a bit and say that you didn't need to have medical diagnostics or even healthcare experience. It was a big plus, but you didn't have to have it. If you've come from an environment where there's a real structured approach to change and to how you do it and you need to be very conscientious about what you do, that's what matters. Obviously, when you look at other areas within our business, such as quality and regulatory, these people need to really come from diagnostics or pharmaceuticals. It's like the compliance of the medical diagnostics world. I'm sure my colleagues would not appreciate that, but it, it, it's sort of it's what keeps the conscience right. It's what gets us what we need from a regulatory perspective. And then when you look at the lab side, the scientists and lab technicians. A lot of our lab technicians might have come out of uni or only had a small amount of time in a lab. They didn't need to be medical diagnostics. They just needed to understand how a lab ran. And the more junior scientists, quite similar. There's certain roles that were more specialist than others, but we could be here all day if we went into that. I think the key, the real key change you know when i first came in i think ideally they were looking for a recruitment manager that had come from a healthcare environment i think they realized pretty really quickly that actually they were limiting their opportunities there so from a support function perspective we tend to bring people in from i mean if i look at the hr team right now the diversity and where people have come from ranges from academia to startups to big corporates with only a handful coming from that sort of healthcare background. And I think that's generally been the attitude for most of the support functions.
0: Yeah. And, and that was kind of why I asked the question. It just seems like an impossible task to find that many people all with relevant sector experience and things like that. But it just, I guess, changes the dynamic of how you position the employer brand if, if they don't have that.
1: But you know, well, we were quite lucky. Our organization, because they're quite, I keep talking, using the word conscientious, but I've spoken to our founders a couple of times. And in fact, one of the founders was in my interview and he sold the dream to me. And it wasn't a dream, it was, it was reality. And you've only got to look at what we're trying to do and people can see that and go, I want to be part of that. Do you know what I mean? It's um, And that I think in itself is an Dead easy sell? No, it's an easier sell because of what you're selling is a good concept. It's going to make a big difference globally.
0: You guys seem to have a distribution challenge, right? Like your messaging is on point. It's just about getting in front of as many people as possible. Whereas I think we see a lot of organizations with the exact opposite problem where they have that reach maybe because they are a consumer brand or otherwise, but the messaging is not resonating with anybody and they're really kind of struggling to undo the negative perception of their brand in the marketplace. And so it's just interesting to kind of sort of deconstruct how you guys have got to where you have, but it's awesome. I think from my perspective, you know, what was the most unexpected challenge, I guess, of scaling the business up so swiftly, right? You've worked for big companies, you know what it's like for an organization that looks at 1,500 people. Over the past sort of two years, what's been the thing that's been sort of most difficult?
1: Starting from a standing start, I think is the key. That might sound like the obvious, but I think the the most difficult here is there wasn't like lots of forward planning. That's got better by the way, and that's something that's massively improved. But if I look at those first ramp ups, you know, we were it was a matter of weeks and you had a spreadsheet in front of you with a big plan and that was the tough gig. And I'm not gonna lie, in some of the corporates they're like that as well. I've I've experienced that in the corporates, but they've at least got the infrastructure, the employer brand and everything that could start to kick off. We didn't have that. So the most challenging thing was that And then trying to get the business on side with what talent acquisition could look like. So I think that the way I overcame that, um, and I go about incremental adjustments, we had candidates going through more assessments than I probably would have liked at the beginning for some of the more sort of manufacturing roles. But actually, what it started to do with the business, it started to breed behaviours. So they started to understand, well, actually, maybe we don't need that. And actually, we've got to start to take this approach. So instead of it being just Dan saying you must or HR saying you've got to, it was almost a bit of a voyage of discovery for the hiring managers as well, which was Slightly purposely orchestrated to breed behaviours, if I'm being honest. I'm not going to say it was perfect. I learnt a lot myself. <laughs> I definitely didn't get it right all the time. But I think that was the way I overcame that challenge because when we went into the phase two ramp up, people were then used to it and it made more sense to them. And, you know, and next time we have a ramp up, we'll do it better again. So again, do you know what I mean? So we're constantly looking at ourselves and saying, you know, what went well, what didn't go well. And what it's doing is driving us towards that. I'd love to say utopia I don't think you ever really quite get there but it definitely to a better place anyway
0: look two final questions to kind of wrap this up right one looking backwards and one looking forwards right so this is a kind of cliche question but given everything you've just said and kind of looking back over the past sort of 24 or 30 months what would you do differently knowing what you know now if somebody had said to you look the company's going to be 1500 people in in two and a half years
1: it sounds dead dull and very dry but the one thing this organization's taught me, and I was always aware of it and always did it before, but I think if if I could have, and it's not even a crystal ball, if I could have built a view of how the company, I could never, no one could have predicted COVID, no one that threw everyone off. But actually, if I could have predicted an element of the growth, learn a bit more about what's going on under the skin to understand how the organization was going to drive, then maybe I could have pushed better for planning and start to understand that because I actually think that would have got us into a more comfortable position before ramp ups and stuff like that happened I think the other thing is I did pull together some basic data off that first three four months of being in the business but Looking back now, I probably could have had richer data that I could have built upon and started to look at what systems I could use to make that happen. So they're probably the biggest learnings for me. So if I could do it differently, that would be it. Because when you look at all the rest of the shiny tech and all the rest of it, that comes along when you've got the data to back it up.
0: No, and I mean, you're practicing, you know, singing from the same hymn sheet as me on that one, frankly, I I can't operate without there. I think it's, it's crucial. I think I said a lot. I said I was going to ask you two questions. There's, I just want to ask you one more, actually. So three total. You talked a little bit, maybe 10 minutes ago about how the first three or four months in the role you spent kind of in the weeds, right? Having those conversations, doing the manual recruitment, and, and you gave some really valid reasons as to why you did that, right? But I guess what I'm interested is lots of people don't do that. And I think you know it's commendable that you did what's the kind of biggest takeaway that you learned or the biggest thing that you identified that you feel like you would have missed had you not done that kind of in the weeds recruiting yourself
1: i think it goes back even more basic than this and me and a couple of people in the networks that i in, we've discussed this a lot there's going to come a time when i need to be hands off but i'm also a big believer that if you're managing a ta team a ta process and you're trying to influence a business you need to be able to ply your trades, so you know, actually know what's going on within those markets. You know, I had to learn this market. I'd never been in life sciences before. So the first two months, might might as well have been speaking to me in a different language. Although if you asked them the question, they geeked out at you. It was great. But the thing for me, I think if you're in a role at this level and you can't ply that trade, you don't know what it is that's going to help that business from a TA perspective. Same as, you know, when I look at when I eventually built that team up now and it's still building, You know, they're all coming into an industry that's quite new to them or, you know, it's fast moving. It's a different environment. You know, some have come from corporates and some are saying your base level knowledge is great and you will use that, but forget everything you knew before. This is different. So I'm able to then look, be in their shoes, help coach, mentor them, you know, move them a certain direction. Our biggest win from a team knowledge perspective is they're starting to become much more data driven. And I think if I had not done that in that first three months, I would have not understood the business although it changes so often that easily goes out of date um i would have not understood what made the managers tick and the motivations for it and i wouldn't have understood what was going to make recruitment work in in lumira dx but also the markets around it so that that are the key things and it's the reason why i stay i'm still managing a small workload of recruitment now that's a great answer
0: and yeah really really helpful my final question then looking forward a bit if I came along as like the magic recruitment budget fairy and doubled your budget tomorrow, what would you spend that? What would you spend the extra money on?
1: Like my, my boss is listening to this bit. I think for me, there's it's systems orientated. So now we do use a basic uh, the, from an HRIS perspective, HR systems. It's it's actually very basic. is very, very sorry, very good, very intuitive. But the the recruitment system's not quite so good. So where would I spend my money? It, it goes a couple of ways. So one. It'll make sure that we've got the systems and tech that we need to be able to have that data coming out of it, make the lives of the recruiters in HR easier. But then there's a couple of other things that needs to come into that. And that's also the hiring. So I look at the journeys, not just from a candidate experience, but from a recruit experience, hiring manager experience as well. But also the, really over, the data piece is really important to me. And there's a number of reasons for it. One, those systems can plough out data as long as you're putting the right things in around your inclusion at each stage of the recruitment process, what your bottlenecks are, what are the issues are, what things do we need to change and course correct, or use the phrase again, um, but also what strategies do we need to put in place. And I think once you've got those systems in and that's really, if, if you'd come to me with a big budget back in September 2019 or even April last year, that's what I would have wanted because the implementation would have been painful the money would have been big, but it would have been worth the investment because the journey after that would be so much better.
0: And do you think there's a time in the journey that that doesn't make sense? Or is it always better to take that pain now? You know, you talk about implementation of systems being expensive and and painful, like, is there a time and a place for that? Or is it just always your kind of fundamental belief is like systems reign true, and you need to have the best ones?
1: Your processes shouldn't be driven by systems. And I think, as a startup, I've in being in startups, that's one thing I've really realized. And and actually if you end up with a big enterprise system, sometimes I've seen organisations be driven by the system limitations, not by their own thinking. So in straightforward answer to yourself, I don't think there is an easy. I think the challenge is is always there. You know, where we've got to now, and this is probably the right way, you know, we we're starting to get the data now. I'm sitting down with a colleague on Friday to plow through that data, build that journey and go right. This is the tech we're going to need. So I can go to my boss and say, now's the time. You know what I mean? We've gone through all this, we've got the data, this is what it's telling us. Therefore, these are the right systems we need to have. And we build a roadmap. So it's not everything in one go. You build a roadmap to do that in that continuous into improvement. So that I don't know if that really answers your question, but for me, I don't think there is a right time. You've just got to build that picture and understand. Selfishly, I would have loved something that could just plug in and go, but it doesn't work that way. So it's (laughs) but um so that's the reason why I don't think there's ever a right time. It's just a case of finding when that right time is and
0: for us I think that's coming Awesome Well look I think that's a great place to round out and just leaves me to say thank you I think everybody's going to have learned a great deal from that myself included uh, so yeah thanks very much for your time I think for everybody listening we've obviously learned a load about Lemira DX today and it sounds like an epic place to be and uh, you know like the old saying if you get out for the seat on a rocket ship don't ask which seat just get on the bloody ship has never seemed truer right so if you're interested in opportunity there check out their careers page at lemira slash careers Uh, And I think, yeah, for more great tales from the trenches and best practice guidance, stay tuned to the Talent Revolution. We've got more great guests like Dan coming every Tuesday. Go ahead and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and we'll see you in the next episode. Thank you for listening.